You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Father, bless your word to us this morning. We're so grateful for the opportunity. And we ask that you open up our hearts very big to receive what you have to give us. Do it, Lord, now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 16, where we're going to begin at verse 1 this morning. Following the story of the book of Acts all the way from the beginning, chapter 1, we've made our way methodically now through to chapter 16. And you're going to notice something. From now to the end of the book, we pick up pace. It's going to go faster and faster because we're going to be following one of the busiest guys of the ancient world, and that's the Apostle Paul. But as we make our way now to Acts chapter 16, what we're going to notice in our text today is something that's throughout the book of Acts, but especially prominent in this first half of chapter 16. And that's just the activity of the Holy Spirit. You may have it in your Bible. I don't know what it says in your Bible at the very beginning of the book of Acts, but, but many Bibles say this. They title it, The Book of the Acts of the Apostles. And I know some people who object to that. They say, listen, the, the, the key thing to the book of Acts is not the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit done through the Apostles. And that's going to be very noticeable here this morning in our text. So let's take a look, beginning now. At verse 1, well, actually, before verse 1, at the very end of chapter 15, we saw Paul and Barnabas back in their home church at Antioch. And there they endeavored to set out on a second missionary trip to go back to those churches that they had already founded before, and they wanted to strengthen them and encourage them. But at the end of chapter 15, we saw one of the uglier things in the book of Acts, We saw this dispute between Paul and Barnabas, this dispute that became so deep, so entrenched, that actually divided. They couldn't work one with another anymore. We hope that they loved each other. They came certainly at some later point to some place of forgiveness and reconciliation. But at least for the time, they were so sore at each other, they couldn't even work together. So Barnabas and John Mark took off for the island of Cyprus and did a lot of good work there, no doubt. But Paul and Silas started working their way up northward through the regions of Cilicia and Syria, and they made their way on to Derbe and to Lystra. Now we pick it up in verse 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. But his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So here we see the Apostle Paul having started in Iconium, having gone first north and then west, probably up through Tarsus and up through the area he came to the city of Derbe and then Lystra. They arrived there first at Derbe, that would have been on the direction that they came, where they had great success in their first missionary journey, did they not? When they got there, they they found a wonderful response to the gospel in Derbe, in Lystra. But in Lystra, even though they were successful... That's where Paul and Barnabas experienced this thing of a group of people in the city of Lystra, first trying to worship them, then trying to kill Paul. It's an interesting story, and it's back in Acts chapter 14. But just to give you a little bit of background on this, according to the estimate of William Barclay, who's a pretty good historian, and I respect his opinion, I can't say it's absolutely certain, but it seems okay to me, 
He estimates that the time gap between Paul's first visit in Lystra and now this second visit in Lystra was about five years. So think about it. About five years before he had left a flourishing church. He had been there just a short time. He had to leave suddenly and he wonders, what is it that I'm leaving behind? They didn't have time to train up great leadership. They didn't have time to pour in and really disciple people the way they wanted to. All they had time for was to do the very best they could. It was a quick operation. And then, well, because Paul got stoned on the outskirts of the city, they had to leave in a hurry. And here's the point. What's there after five years? I'll tell you what's there after five years. Look at verses one and two. It says, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. In the time since Paul had been to Lystra, a young man named Timothy had been serving the Lord. It says right there that he was well spoken of by the brethren. And Timothy was a man who had a believing mother who was of a Jewish background and a father who was of a Greek background. And presumably the father was not a believer because it doesn't mention him being so in verse two. But friends, isn't that pretty thrilling? Paul leaves a city having just started a church there and just been there a few weeks. He leaves there five years later. He comes back and it's a church that's turning out great grounded disciples, guys like Timothy. So much so that Paul notices this guy and he says, I want you on my team. That's what we hear. Verse three. Check this out. It says Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Paul saw this young man, Timothy, a man that Paul had not directly discipled in the faith, not in his first several years of his Christian life, but a man who had been led to Christ through the work that Paul left behind in Lystra. And he looked at Timothy and he said, you're a young man, but you love the Lord. You're passionate. You're just the kind of guy that I want on my missionary team. Isn't that great? Paul recruiting talent as he goes around. He looks at Timothy and says, I want you to come with me. I want you to go on with me. And he took him and then you saw that in verse three. And maybe you were horrified by that. It says, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews in that region. Now you read that and you go, Good heavens, what have I just been reading in the book of Acts? I wouldn't blame somebody for saying that. Didn't we read just over the last two weeks how there was this huge controversy over the fact that you did not have to be circumcised to be saved? You did not have to put yourself under the law of Moses. You didn't have to. And Paul seemed to fight for that principle more strongly than anybody. But here at this time, when he picks up Timothy and puts him on his missionary team, what's the first thing that he does? He says, Timothy... I thought of other ways to express it, but I'll just say, you got to get circumcised. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? Amazing. Now, people rightly ask the question, Paul, are you compromising? Paul, have you suddenly turned legalistic? Paul, have you suddenly determined that now circumcision is a requirement for salvation? And I need to tell you that no, Paul did not contradict his beliefs in the slightest. And actually what he did here was totally consistent with his heart, with his mind, and with his theology. Look at it very carefully there. It says there in verse 3 that Paul wanted to have him go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Do you understand the connection there? 
First of all, please understand what you're dealing with is large villages, right? And even in this large village life, everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everybody's business. When Timothy would walk into a synagogue in that area, they would know a few things. They would know, number one, that his mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. They would know that. Secondly, they would know something about the boy and his family, and they would say that at least in some ways he was raised as a Greek and not as a Jew. Now, I know that he was taught the scriptures from his youth. That's what Paul says about Timothy later on. But apparently he was enough identified with the Greek character of his father that it was known abroad that Timothy was not circumcised, that he was not brought under the law of Moses. Therefore, Paul said, you know what? When we go to synagogue and synagogue and use the freedom of the synagogue to preach to the Jews in the synagogue, and if we want great contacts with all the Jewish people around, we cannot have it that the first thing on their mind when they see Timothy, and they say, yeah, he's got a Jewish mother, but you know, he never got circumcised. Paul said, let's just fix that right now. And Timothy said, really? (laughs) And Paul said, yes, not to save you. Timothy, it has nothing to do with your salvation. It has nothing to do with you being right with God. I'll tell you what it has to do. It has to do with your effectiveness in service. Friends, there's a lot of things that people do within the ministry that connect to their effectiveness in service that have no direct relevance upon their uh, salvation. I'll mention a big one, and I don't mention this to bring up controversy, to offend anybody. I'm just using it as illustration, so please track with me. It's the whole issue of drinking of alcohol and for a pastor, right? Now listen, I, I know that the Bible does not condemn all the drinking of alcohol, and if somebody wants to responsibly enjoy something like that, well listen, that's between you and the Lord. I hope you obey the command to not get drunk because that is a serious biblical command, and, and I pray that you enjoy it and, and that you, you understand that you're not going to disobey in that area. But as for somebody in the ministry, do you know how great it is just to say, yeah, I don't drink alcohol. I don't have to make excuses. I don't have to explain. I don't have to do that. No, I'll be honest with you. Look, for me, it's not like some great, tremendous sacrifice, okay? I really don't like the taste of alcohol that much. <laughs> So I'm not going to play this, oh, I'm such a martyr. You know, I gave it up for the Lord. I can't do that before. Not honestly. Look, it's just, it's just me. It's, it's no great sacrifice for me whatsoever. But you know how great it is just to be able to not even think about it? And so I think it's just so wonderful. That's exactly what Paul was doing with Timothy here. Timothy, let's just completely take it off the table as an issue. Would you like to? Yes, let's do it. I'm not looking forward to the surgical procedure, but look, let's just get this settled. That way I can walk into a synagogue and everybody can know, listen, this man won't offend anybody here because he has a Jewish mother and he's circumcised. End of issue. Now let's talk about Jesus. And that's what we want to do, right? That's what I want to do as a pastor. Look, I I don't feel like drinking alcohol is some huge forbidden fruit or something like this, or I'll lose my salvation or the Holy Spirit will depart from me. I just want to take it off the table because I want to talk about Jesus. And that's what Paul was effectively able to do with Timothy. And look at the result. Can you argue with the result? Look at it in verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. That's results, right? Churches were strengthened. They increased in numbers daily because the work of God was going strong among these disciples. Now starting at verse 6. 
Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? Again, sometimes it's so easy for us to read the Bible and not think about the actual words we're reading. But if you think about these actual words, I think you'd be a little bit surprised here. You'd be a little bit surprised by that phrase in verse 6, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Because I need to clarify some terminology here. When it says Asia, it's not talking about what we think of as China and Japan and all of that. This is Asia in the Roman conception of Asia. And the Romans had a province called Asia Minor that, according to Paul's travels, was sort of to the southwest of where they were currently. And the major city of Asia Minor was one of the great cities of the ancient world, Ephesus. Does that name ring out in your mind a little bit? It should. There's a book in the Bible, Ephesians, written to the Christians at Ephesus. And you're going to see something later on in the book of Acts. We'll get to it in several weeks. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul makes it to Ephesus. And he spends a lot of time there. And he establishes a strong church there. And matter of fact, he leaves Timothy there as someone to really guide that church. But right here, right now in Acts chapter 16, Paul and his whole team says, we want to go to Asia. We want to go to Ephesus and start a church there. And you know what the Holy Spirit says? No. Isn't that weird? Isn't it strange that the Holy Spirit would forbid somebody to preach the gospel? I just imagine them having a prayer time about it. Okay, Lord, how do you want to guide us? Where do, oh, Ephesus. Yes, Lord, we know you want to do a great work in Ephesus. It's one of the great cities. Man, a church there could really have a great effect on the whole region. Oh, yes, Lord, do a great work in Ephesus. And by the way, later on, God did a great work in Ephesus. I can't wait to get to it. But what I'm saying is, Right here, right now, God says, no. Matter of fact, isn't the wording very strong in verse 6? The Holy Spirit forbade them. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Now listen, I've had the Holy Spirit forbid things in my life, but usually he's got to prompt me to preach the gospel, not forbid me to do it in a place that I shouldn't. And I think it's very, very interesting here how wonderfully it was that the Holy Spirit was guiding them. Now, I don't know how he guided them. I don't know if it was through a prophetic word or an inward speaking of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if it was circumstances. You know, maybe they had it all planned and they had a caravan ready to go to Ephesus. And then everything fell apart at the last minute. It could have been circumstances. It could have been a prophetic word. We're not told how the Holy Spirit forbade them to go to Ephesus. But he said no. Now, look at the verse 7. It says, then they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit did not permit them. So after they had attempted to go sort of to the south and to the west, then they tried to go north into Bithynia. But once again, they were prevented by the Holy Spirit. They said, well, the Holy Spirit won't let us go south and west. The Holy Spirit won't let us go uh, uh, north up to Bithynia. Where can we go? Well, we'll just go to Troas. And that's exactly where they went. Now, what I want you to notice is, is they never intended to go to Troas. That was third on their list. But yet it was the Holy Spirit's plan to lead them there. And friends, I just want to remind you about something. I told you we were talking about the acts of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit guides, how the Holy Spirit drives us. Let me tell you, oftentimes the Holy Spirit will guide us through hindrance, right? The Holy Spirit will tell you where to go by showing you where not to go. And that's a good thing, isn't it? Oh, listen, sometimes we get so upset with the Lord about this, right? 
Lord, I want to go here. Lord, I want to do this. And God says, no. And we think he's betrayed us. We think that the Lord has forsaken us. Lord, why won't you let me go to Ephesus? It's such a great plan. I know you want a church there. And God just sits back in heaven and goes, you bet I want a church there, but it's not the right time and you're not the right guy right now. Don't worry about it. Oh, no, Lord, Bithynia, that's the place. Bithynia, yes, let's go there. God says, no, you can't go there. All right, Lord, choice number three. And then you find out that it was the perfect will of God for you. If there's any question that's on the hearts and minds of people over and over again that I find when I talk to Christians, it's how can I know the will of God? Christians want to know that all the time. How can I know the will of God? And you know one of the biggest things I tell people when I'm talking about how to know the will of God? The, the, the biggest word I say is, okay, take a deep breath and relax just for a minute, won't you? You are so bound up. You are so anxious. You're so, you know, just worked up in your heart and your mind and your soul over this. You need to just step back and realize that the God who lives in heaven loves you. And if you'll just trust him and let him guide you, he will guide you. How about this one? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. I see some of you mouthing it with me right now, right? In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what? And he will direct your paths. Isn't that? Do you believe it or not? I believe it. I don't always live it, but I believe it. Friends, listen, listen. Is this not the Holy Spirit directing the paths of Paul? And does not the Holy Spirit direct your paths sometimes by telling you no or hindering you or blocking you on something? Listen, what I want you to do this morning is just thank God for guiding you by hindrance sometimes. You can think back, right? Think back to that girl in high school that you were so, so excited about marrying. Look what's happened to her now. Aren't you happy that God's put the kibosh on that? Now, of course, if you did marry that girl in high school, well, then there you go. See, that was the Lord's will for you, too. If she's sitting beside you right now, I don't mean to cause any trouble about that. But listen, sometimes the Holy Spirit guides through opening doors and sometimes he guides through closing doors. That David Livingstone wanted to go to China, but God sent him to Africa. William Carey wanted to go to Polynesia, but God sent him to India. Adoniram Judson, he wanted to go to India, but God guided him to Burma. I wanted to go to Maui, but God sent me to Santa Barbara. No, that's just a joke. That's just a joke. But listen, it's true. God guides us right along the way to just the right place. Does he not? I mean, I believe he's done it here and, and he's done it certainly in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit guides. Now, look at his continued guidance. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know what I love about this? Is that God could have given Paul this vision of a Macedonian man weeks before. Couldn't he have not have? But before he even thought of going to Ephesus, he could have given him that vision. Before he ever thought of going to Bithynia, he could have given him that. But I don't know why. But God waited until this time, this place, when they were in Troas, just at a seaport, not very far from going across the water over to, Eph uh, to Philippi, to Macedonia. He spoke to them saying, listen, this is what I want you to do. And they saw this great vision. 
In Troas, God made Paul's direction very clear. Here's a vision. I want you to go to Macedonia, westward across the Aegean Sea. I want you to go to the continent of Europe. Now listen, the wisdom, the goodness, the, the, the brilliance of God's plan is beginning to unfold. You know, Paul looked and he saw some strategic cities that he could reach for Jesus Christ. And he was excited about reaching those strategic cities. So he said, oh man, look at Ephesus. Ooh, that's it. Look at the cities in Bithynia. Oh, that's even better. Yes, let's do those. And God says, no, Paul, you're thinking too small. I want to give you a whole continent. I want to give you the continent of Europe. And when they sailed across the Aegean Sea, as we're going to see westward across that water, that was the first time that any deliberate effort had been made to plant the flag of the gospel in Europe. And you and I are inheritors of that to this day, are we not? Did not the gospel come to us from from Europeans? Did it not come to us in that way? And we are inheritors of that even to our current time. Look at how it was in verse 9. A man in Macedonia stood up and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. I don't know how he knew he was Macedonian. Maybe he was wearing some distinctive clothing. Maybe he had a T-shirt that said Macedonia on his shirt. I don't know. But he said, listen, please come over and help us. And friends, by the way, that was the very best help that they could do. They could go over and bring them the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. So love this. Verse 10, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go. Paul didn't hesitate to answer the call of the Macedonian man. The the, the missionary team did not hesitate to follow him on the basis of this call. Paul was a strong, godly man. He got the vision and he said, okay, guys, let's go. We're heading off for Macedonia. Now, before I go on and just consider one other thing there in verse 10, I want to remind you, God still radically calls people to the mission field today. He does. And listen, I know I know, I know that there is so much work for us to do in our own community. And if God has called you to stay here in our community and to focus on it, praise the Lord. Don't take any shame in that at all. Nevertheless, I do know this as well. That there are some individuals that God says, you know what, for whatever reason, I'm going to take you out of the way you are and I'm going to send you someplace else to do a work. Sometimes it doesn't seem to make any human sense, but God knows exactly what he's doing and doing it. I've seen this happen. Many unlikely people out on the mission field and God just uses them in the most spectacular way. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing. And so here this work is going on. Verse 10, it says, immediately we sought to go. Now, by the way, did you notice something there? Very fascinating. It says, immediately, we sought to go. Wait a minute, who's the we? Do you understand something? In Troas, Luke joined them. Luke, the author of the book of Acts. Apparently, he was hanging out in Troas. He was a doctor. He was a physician. He was doing his work there. It almost certainly means that Luke joined the band of missionaries there in Troas. I've got a theory. It's just a theory. I can't prove it. But I want you to consider that maybe Luke came along as Paul's personal physician. That's another reason why they might have been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. It's another reason why the Spirit did not permit them to go into Bithynia. You you see, Paul had no idea of the greatness of God's purpose. God wanted to give him a continent for Jesus. God wanted to give him a personal physician And God wanted to connect him with the man who was going to write more of the New Testament than any other single individual. Paul, meet Luke. Luke, meet Paul. 
By the way, isn't that another reason why the vision of the Macedonian man didn't come until they came to Troas? Because there at Troas, they could meet Luke and God used it. So what did they do? Verse 11. Friends, verse 11 is one of those thrilling verses in the book of Acts. I know I've said that probably 30 times already through Acts, but it really is. This is opening up the gospel to a whole new continent. They've gone from the continent of Asia across the Aegean Sea over to the continent of Europe. And here they go, verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And the next day we came to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. So they got on the boat, now including Luke. You you could say that there's four of them, right? There's Paul, there's Luke, there's Silas, who started out with Paul all the way from Antioch, and there's who else? Timothy, right? They picked up Timothy and Lystra. So these four guys, they make their way across the Aegean Sea. They go from Troas. They stop by the place Samothrace. And then verse 12, it says, And there from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. They land at Neapolis, and then they go inland to the city of Philippi. And they came to this major city where they were going to do a major work. Now, can you imagine you get to that new city, new continent, new people? What do you do? Where do you start? Well, Paul had a habit in every place, right? What would he do? When he went to a new place, he'd go to the synagogue, right? So he goes, okay, let's go to the synagogue in Philippi. He starts asking around, hey, uh, where's the synagogue in Philippi? And what do they tell him? There is none. There is no synagogue in Philippi. Well, oh, good heavens, he says. This means if there's no synagogue in Philippi, it means... There's not even 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi. Because under Jewish custom at that time, if there were 10 Jewish men, you had to start a synagogue. You couldn't start a synagogue if there were less than 10 Jewish men. 10 Jewish men. That's what we have to do. There's not even that many here. So where do they meet? And they told them where they met. Check it out. Check it out right here, starting at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who met there, the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Wasn't this beautiful? There's no synagogue service because there's not enough Jewish men in the city of Philippi, but the women are holding down the fort. And the women say, we can't have a synagogue service, but we can have a prayer service out by the riverside. So let's get together there. The Jewish men of the city, excuse me, the Jewish women of the city gather together over at the riverside there at a particular place outside the city of Philippi, and they have a prayer service. So Paul comes along, and they're probably so excited to see a real rabbi, just like Paul was dressed and everything. Wow, this is a guy who's going to speak to us. And so they came, and it's where prayer was customarily made, and they met this woman named Lydia. Now, it's interesting what it says about Lydia there in verse 14. Did you catch that? She's a seller of what? A seller of purple. Now, in the ancient world, they were very class conscious. And just like in the modern world, you can tell somebody, oftentimes, not all the time, of course, but oftentimes you can tell somebody's class by the way that they dress. Well, in the ancient world, if you wore purple, it meant you were wealthy. Because the dyes that were used to make purple garments 
were very expensive. They were very difficult to make. Purple clothing was the mark of wealth. You had money. Therefore, if you sold purple, you dealt in a luxury item. You know, here's the, the jeweler. Here's the person selling high-end automobiles. Uh, probably not exactly corporate jets, but, you know, that kind of thing where she's dealing in a high-end market. This is Lydia, someone who's dealing with these people, dealing in a valued, luxurious progress uh, pro- product. And what does she do? She's the first convert in Europe. I tell you what, I, I don't know for sure, but I think this is what the Apostle Paul said when he met this lady and led her to the Lord. He said, how was I to know that the Macedonian man was actually a woman? Right? Come over and help us. And it turned out to be a woman is their first convent that they made. But I want you to notice what it says right there in verse 14. It says, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now, that's another great activity of the Holy Spirit. You see, the first activity of the Holy Spirit that we spoke of before is the way that the Holy Spirit guides us, Right? And we can trust his guidance in our life. But here's a second way that the Holy Spirit works. And this is how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of those who have not yet believed. He works by opening their hearts to hear the things of the word of God. I fully recognize that there are among us here this morning, among us here every Sunday, there are people who come and you know what? You have chosen to not yet believe. You have chosen to not yet just really yield your life to Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly why it is you come. Maybe you just feel it's good. Maybe it's a good custom. Maybe you like the people around you. Maybe there's a family member that you know it's important to them. You enjoy the experience yourself. But for whatever reason, you just say, I have not yet chosen to believe. Let me tell you, I am thrilled that you're here. Because I believe that someday the Holy Spirit is going to open up your heart. And you're going to find yourself believing even if you didn't intend to. That's my prayer for right here, right now. You didn't walk in here intending to believe. You didn't walk in here intending today to be a day that changes your life. But you know what? Maybe the Holy Spirit had other plans for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart right now. Maybe it's just, just do it. Just believe. Stop trying to believe. That's some of your problems. You've been trying to believe for a long time. Do you know the Bible never tells you to try to believe? It says just believe. Just believe in who Jesus is. He's the son of God, fully God and fully man. And believe in what he did for you. He died on a cross to bear the penalty of your sins. As Paul preached this message to the group, he noticed one person. Maybe there were more, but he noticed at least one person. He could probably just see it on her face. She was getting it. She was drinking it in. He asked people who wants to believe in this. And she responded. Look at what it says right there in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. That's a word God has to do in everybody who believes. Did you know what Jesus said in John chapter uh, 6? He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody. You, You can't come to Jesus unless he does a prior work in your heart. And that's the work that we believe that God wants to do among us right here, right now. By the way, this reminds us of another thing. Do you know what some of the most important work you can do in evangelism is? It's to pray. It's to pray for that other person and pray that God moves their heart. It's been said, I actually, I forget who said it. I don't know if it was A.W. Tozer, if it was Andrew Murray. It was one of those great men of God. He said, 
It's more important to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God. Now, listen, thankfully, we don't have to make that choice, right? We can do both. But listen, don't neglect the place of prayer in evangelism because we believe that the Holy Spirit can take even a hardened heart and change it. Do you want to see how much she was changed? Look at verse 15. It says she begged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She wanted them to stay so bad. She busted out the guilt card on them right away. If you really believe I'm a convert, then you should come and stay at my house. And they did. Now, let's look at the end part of our section here. We're going to take it up to verse 18, but start with just verses 16 and 17 here. It says, now, now it happened that as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaims to us the way of salvation. Fascinating, isn't it? This girl, she was demon-possessed, yet she was a source of money to her masters as a fortune teller. I've got to believe that today, much of what fortune tellers and psychics do is only a money-making sham. There's nothing supernatural about it all. It's just all, you know, weird words and trickery. But I'll tell you this, when it is true... When it does have a spiritual or a supernatural element to it, it's not the Lord. And it could very well be inspired by demons. I believe that there are still some today who are possessed with the spirit of divination, even as it's spoke of in verse 16. Now listen, demons are created beings. They're not gods themselves. And I don't believe, even though you can get a good debate going among Christians sometimes on this, I don't believe that demons can read our minds. Not actually. They can't actually get inside of our heads and read our thoughts the way that the Lord knows our thoughts. But I heard a man express it well once, and I would have to agree with him. He said, I don't believe that demons can actually read my mind, but if my wife knows what I'm thinking, surely a devil can know what I'm thinking. (laughs) Right? In other words... Just from time and experience, not because they can actually get in and read my thoughts, but because they're just good predictors of human behavior, of human patterns, of human habits. But listen, they can also steer events towards a previously predicted conclusion. I believe that this girl was demon possessed, just as the text says, and this was a serious thing. But but notice, this is what was problematic about it. See what she was doing in verse 17? This girl followed Paul and us, Luke was there too, cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Here's the problem. When it came to Paul and his team, they were telling the truth. How would you like to be followed around by a demon-possessed girl saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God and they're speaking to us the truth? At first you'd go, I don't like who's saying it, but I can't contest that the words are true. And that's why they put up for it for several days. But look at verse 18. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, I love that, greatly annoyed, turned. He didn't annoy quickly. It took several days. Greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. See, Paul was greatly annoyed. 
He didn't appreciate even the free advertising from the demonic spirit. He didn't appreciate the source of the recommendation. And so he didn't need demonic approval of his work. And no doubt, I would just say, as much as anything, he was annoyed at the control that that demonic spirit had over that poor girl. You know, that would just have to wear on you after a while. Seeing this poor girl under the bondage to demonic spirits. And finally, for whatever reason, at that time, at that place, the Holy Spirit so moved Paul that he turned around and he said to the demonic spirit inhabiting that poor girl, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Paul did not try to cast out demons with his own authority, but only with the authority of his Savior, Jesus Christ. He spoke not directly to the afflicted girl, but to the demon itself with the authority of Jesus. And what happened? That demon, it says right there in verse 18, he came out of her that very hour. Now, don't think that it meant it took an hour to come out, even though that wouldn't be weird. But the idea there behind the Greek phrasing is immediately that demon came out. At that very moment, that demon came out. I see here a third, and we'll make it a concluding point here on the power of the Spirit. We saw the power of the Holy Spirit to guide, right? We saw the power of the Holy Spirit to save, to open up a heart. Here we see the power of the Holy Spirit to free people from the powers of darkness. Wow. You know what? I just want you to think about those three things. The Spirit's guidance, the Spirit's salvation by opening hearts, and the Spirit's power to free people from the powers of darkness. Ladies and gentlemen, God's work is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when I think of those three things, I think that there's probably not a single person in this room that doesn't need one of those three things. There's probably some of you who need two of those things from the Holy Spirit. And I wouldn't doubt that there's not a few. of You need all three here this morning. But the Holy Spirit is here to give it to you, to pour it out upon you. And I want you to know something. You may not even believe in the power of Jesus. You may not even believe in this power and this working of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know what? If you don't believe in it, okay. I believe in it. You're surrounded by people who believe in it. And we're going to trust that God works in your life even, even if you're not at a place right now where you're going to embrace it. Friends, don't you see that the Holy Spirit is here to meet your need this morning? I'm glad you're here, but I hope you're not looking to me directly to meet your needs. Though I'm happy to talk with you, pray with you, whatever. Listen, whatever happens in and through me or anybody on this prayer team or anybody else that ministers to you this morning, it's going to happen as the work of the Holy Spirit works through them. He's here to guide you. He's here to save you. That is to open up your heart. He is here to deliver you from the powers of darkness.